Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this journey, all things Dominic Dunn. Thanks for joining me today. In this episode, we're going to go on a very different kind of voyage with Dominic Dunn. We've heard a lot about his Vanity Fair articles, and we'll hear more about them, as well as his novels in future episodes. But there was a super fun little magical side project that you may be familiar with called Power, Privilege, and Justice. Our man Nick was the host for this American television series, which for nine seasons from 2002 to Nick's death in 2009 examines cases of crime, passion, and greed among the upper crust in a nifty 40 or so minute format. When Nick is approached for this project, the justice warrior himself is thrilled to be finding a new audience through the medium of television, where he originally started as a production assistant all those years ago. He will call himself privately Alastair Hitchcock. Combining two classic storytellers, Alastair Cook and Alfred Hitchcock, into Dominic's own blend of his narrator character. Covering privileged people in criminal situations, this is his wheelhouse. Some of the cases profiled within the Power, Privilege, and Justice television series, Nick will also write about for Vanity Fair. Some he will write fictional accounts of within his novels, and then some episodes, like the case we're covering today, stand alone. Dominic does not write about the case or the trial, which take place in the mid-1970s. Remember, Dominic right now is busy bottoming himself out in Hollywood in his last days of drug and alcohol addiction. This case is special to him, however. He knows the players involved, which might prompt its coverage on Power, Privilege, and Justice in its sixth season. Airing originally on Court TV February 6, 2006, the episode titled The Starlet and the Skier examines the criminal case that rocked the town of Aspen, Colorado in the early 1970s when the ex-wife of legendary crooner Andy Williams, Claudine Langer, will stand trial for shooting her boyfriend, the Olympic skier Spider Savage. Let's investigate. mentioned in the introduction, this is a case only covered by Nick on power, privilege, and justice. It is a concise 40-minute something minutes of television, but without his writing on the case, I get the opportunity to round out more of the story for you this week. All additional references I have used, as well as any links mentioned, are available by visiting our website at doneanddone.com. Let's introduce a few of the players in our drama beginning with Claudine Langer. Claudine was born in Paris and comes to the United States to become a big star. She'll get as far as Las Vegas, at least at first. Claudine is beautiful, graceful, and quite different than the average showgirl at the time. She works at the Follies Bergere at the Tropicana, and things are going well enough until a faded dark night on the desert highway when Claudine's car breaks down and a good Samaritan stops to assist the sad, helpless, stranded girl. The good Samaritan in this case is the very famous singer Andy Williams. And when these two meet in 1960, Andy is 33 and single, Claudine is 19, lovely, fragile, and French, and a Love affair is born. There is someone else, though, a little disappointed when this romance begins. 
Andy's long-term lover, the American author, voice talent, dancer, and actress, Kay Thompson. You may be most familiar with Kay Thompson as the creator of the Eloise Children's Books, but let me assure you that Kay Thompson is a multi-talented creative force. Kay and Andy have been in an ongoing affair from about 1947 all the way through to the early 1960s. And when Andy Williams falls for Claudine, Kay Thompson is going to depart for Rome to live a very happy life there, not wasting her time anymore on a younger man that threw her away for a younger French ingenue. Claudine and Andy will marry December 15th, 1961, right before Andy hits a new level of fame, singing the breakout song of 1962, Moon River. The song, composed by Henry Mancini, written by Johnny Mercer for the film Breakfast at Tiffany's, based on the novella by Truman Capote, Andy Williams will release this song and the already popular singer hits a new level of stardom. Life is pretty good for the couple. New marriage, a smash song, babies on the way too. The couple welcomes two children in pretty quick succession. And with a growing family and star on the rise, Andy and the family will move into a seaside mansion in Malibu. Dominic is familiar with Andy and Claudine going all the way back to this time. Everyone's hanging on weekends at the beach together. And Claudine Langer, y'all, takes Hollywood by storm. Remember Jacqueline Kennedy is the first lady in the country of France and the French culture getting quite a reputation boost based upon Jacqueline's fondness for all things French. And Claudine, French, charming, exotic, and with a physical ideal that cannot be stopped, Claudine is making it happen. Andy's going to sign a deal for his own musical variety television show, The Andy Williams Show. The television program debuts in 1962 and will run until 1967, with a revival a few years later. This added opportunity gives Claudine and her tiny but rocking physical attributes, as well as a passable voice. It allows her a guest starring role on the weekly year-round show, inviting other popular stars of the day for recurring roles. The couple sings together, they dance sometimes. This is the family business, and it's all a little corny, but it's good, wholesome family entertainment. Their Christmas special is the highest-rated program in television history and holds that record for a number of years until it is finally outdone by a Super Bowl. Claudine is going to find a few small parts, acting as well in guest shows like McHale's Navy. Again, it's the family business, but they're having fun too. Claudine going to get a little bump up when she meets Herb Alpert, who is charmed by her. He thinks she is something else. And because of this connection, Claudine will release five albums of easy listening covers for A&M Records from 1966 to 1970. As the 1960s move along to the end of the decade, Nick and Lenny are hanging with Claudine and Andy. Dominic will describe her as absolutely stunning and then reveal the couple was very popular on the party circuit. These four are also all original members of the Daisy, which we covered back in episode two on Done and Done. Claudine and Andy are also very good friends with Robert Kennedy and his wife Ethel. The couples regularly socialize at each other's homes, and Andy and Claudine are very invested into RFK's chances at the White House. 
and Andy and Claudine will be waiting upstairs at the Ambassador Hotel on June the 4th, 1968, when Robert Kennedy is killed. They all had plans to hang out at this cool new club called The Factory that night after Kennedy's victory speech. Instead of the planned outing to the factory, Claudine and Andy will join the family at the Good Samaritan Hospital, where they remain waiting for doctors to save their friend's life. Robert Kennedy does pass away June the 6th, and Claudine and Andy will be at his funeral, held June the 8th at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City, where Andy will sing Battle Hymn of the Republic at the service. Andy will say this was the hardest thing he has ever done. The couple will have a third child in 1969, named for their friend Robert, but even a third child cannot repair the shattered bonds of this marriage. The news of their split is shocking, both to the public and Hollywood. The hottest couple in town is splitting up. At this time, Claudine and Andy separate formally. The divorce will take a little while longer, but this storybook marriage is over. Which leaves Claudine now looking for a new scene. She wants to put Hollywood in her rearview mirror as quickly as possible. And off to Aspen, Colorado it is for a new life in this up-and-coming playground for the wealthy and powerful. Power, Privilege, and Justice will say of Aspen at the time that it is a freewheeling community of thrill-seekers, trust-fund bohemians, and vacationing celebrities. In the early 1970s, Aspen is still kind of a Wild West town. Lots of money, lots of stars, and Claudine doesn't want to miss a moment. Aspen is hot in the scene now, and it's only going to get hotter when Claudine shows up. Dominic will say it was an ideal place for the stunning Chanteuse to land. She gave off heat. Let's leave her melting to meet our victim in this case, Vladimir Savage Jr. He's nicknamed Spider almost from the moment of birth. Spider was born premature, and even under the heat lamp, he was just all arms and legs. Hence his forever nickname. Spider does seem to fit him, though, and he's growing and soon enough pretty brawny and showing some true athletic prowess. As a teenager, he is breaking through the up-and-coming world of skiing, which is really just taking off in popularity. And he's a talent, a wonder. Jimmy Ellsworth, a childhood friend of Spider's, will say in a 2005 appearance in California Conversations, he was fearless. He didn't hesitate. He had God-given coordination. This talent will lead Spider even as an 8th grader, beating 17 and 18-year-olds in a pretty important competition, which gets Spider noticed by legendary ski coach Bob Biatti. Bob is the man that's going to develop Spider, eventually ending up recruiting him into the University of Colorado Boulder where, helpfully, Bob Biatti is the ski coach of the team. But the other thing Bob does in all of his free time, he's the coach of the U.S. ski team. You see it all coming together, right? Spider is tall, loose blonde hair, handsome, easygoing, and he's not only a genius on the slopes, but he is very well liked by the ladies. Leading a charmed life, Spider is. This guy kind of has it all. He will compete in the 1968 Olympics, finishing fifth in the slalom and cementing his place as one of the best skiers in the world as the sport is literally taking off. Two months later, he will win the World Cup. He is 22 years old. 
He is winning races, partying hard and playing with the ladies, very much with a work hard, play hard type view of life. Spider turns professional in 1970 because Bobbiati is largely responsible for making skiing into a thing. He will found the Professional League for the United States. Spider wins these Professional League championships in both 1971 and 1972. These championships are broadcast to viewers on Saturday afternoon on the very popular Wide World of Sports shown by ABC. Spider is well known and at the top of the mountain, so to speak, in his game, having a marvelous time in Aspen. He's the star of the sport, and now he has a little cash from the wins and the sponsorships and endorsements. And with some of this cash, Spider's going to build one of the first homes in the exclusive Starwood and Aspen subdivision. It's a gated and secured community with million-dollar views and sweeping vistas. He is going to pay for his land and his home outright, $250,000. Homeowner, handsome, popular, generally all around the most charming guy you'd ever hope to meet. It's all happening for Spider. He's also got some super keen neighbors in his Starwood and Aspen home. To one side, Edgar Stearns, the owner of Sears. To the other side, John Denver and his wife Annie. Power, Privilege, and Justice will say Aspen at the time was an intoxicating mix of celebrity, wealth, and decadence. Dominic will chime in here. In the 70s, it was quite a scene, and it wasn't just the slopes that were frosted with white powder. The sheriff from Pitkin County, the county in Colorado where Aspen is located, is interviewed in this episode. His name is Bob Broadus. He will say that there was whiskey, pot, cocaine, and a strong health ethic, if you can imagine those blended together. Let us move along now to 1972, where the scene is set. You know our town. You know our players, Claudine and Spider. These two will meet at a celebrity ski competition in Bear Valley one weekend, and from the instant they meet, it is fireworks. Their attraction is noticed by everyone. And Claudine will go to Spider's best friend and get herself an invitation to his home for the weekend, where Spider is helpfully invited to dinner that night. By the end of this weekend, the two are inseparable and have begun a world-class love affair, the starlet and the skier. In 1973, Spider's career will take a hit when he is injured in a crash during an event on the professional circuit. But hey! Spider, guy who goes with the flow. The time off the slopes gives Spider more time to hang out with his best friend and neighbor, John Denver. They're having a lot of fun. Working less hard leaves Spider more time to play hard. By early 1974, the romance has heated up, and Claudine and her three children have moved into the Starwood Chalet with Spider. They are all settling in happily, Claudine, Spider, and the kids anyway, because not everybody is so happy or super keen on their relationship. There are a lot of ladies in Aspen who had not quite shot their shot with Spider, and now Claudine has removed the most handsome eligible bachelor on the market, off the market. From the very beginning, Claudine is viewed with some suspicion and resentment, maybe some animosity too. She is perceived as an outsider, 
And again, much like her role with Andy Williams, Claudine is perceived as a second fiddle to a famous mate. Things go pretty well for a while. In 1975, Claudine will sing on a recording for the album for The Little Prince, which will win a Grammy the following year. Spider's racing career has definitely changed a bit, but the two are trying to build some kind of happy family together. Of all of Spider's girlfriends, Claudine is the only one he ever brings home to meet his family. Spider really does like Claudine's kids a lot. He likes being involved with them, taking them on outings and sort of being a fatherly influence, but soon enough, strife and discontentment will begin. You see, Claudine is looking for all of Spider's attention all the time and will resent any time Spider may have wanting to, you know, not be with her 24 hours a day. And Spider, well, he's a pretty active dude. Maybe he's resenting the loss of his good times. Even with as much as he likes her kids, Claudine is cutting off outside influences, one by one. And as life does, events progress, and Spider will fracture a vertebra, which ends his professional skiing career in the 1976 season. So now he's home, a little bit more time to potentially party while Claudine is at home with the kids for his late night jaunts about the town, which will increase her jealousy and suspicion by the day. By 1975, friends are watching the relationship begin to crack. Signs are apparent that the super hot love affair is showing the strain. Guests at a party around this time recall Claudine throwing a glass of wine at Spider when he was not paying enough attention to her. It will hit him in the chest, and the glass will break when it falls to the floor. Spider will say to the friend that he is talking to when the glass hits, I think Claudine is trying to get my attention. Friends of Spider's recall conversations around this time as well. By this point, everyone knows, including Spider that this has to end. The rumor is Claudine is looking to build a new home in Aspen as well. The fighting is growing more intense by the day, and it is becoming clear to the couple and to friends and, well, all of Aspen that these two might not be quite destined for each other in the stars. By January of 1976, Spider has had enough of all of this indecision. He's made up his mind, He's been talking to friends for months now. These conversations increase with him really questioning how to best do this. I don't want to hurt the children, but she won't leave. What do I do? How do I end this relationship? I would throw her out, but I'm not throwing kids out on the street. How do I make this happen with the least amount of damage to all involved? By early March, Spider finally gets the courage and tells Claudine, You have to go. I love your kids, but the relationship with you and I is not working, and here's the deal. I'm going to give you a month to arrange alternate housing for you and your children. I'm not going to see them suffer for this, but I need you to get out of my chalet by April the 1st. By every account except for one, it seems like Spider did this as well as he could. But the one account that does not agree with the way this was handled, is Claudine's. Because in her diary, she will write that uh, she does not take this news quite as kindly as he may have delivered it. 
She's pretty angry about it, if not downright furious. Enraged, maybe the word, about how it all goes down. During this time, Spider's going to spend more time out of the home, away from the drama. Claudine will begin drinking a little bit more. From my description of the town, as described earlier in the narrative, there is no telling what other types of substances each of this pair may be using as well. Let us move on to the next act of this drama, where we get to Sunday, March 21st. That April 1st deadline is looming. And this Sunday morning, Spider will head to the slopes, and Claudine will head into town, and after a wine-filled lunch at an upscale local bar called Little Nell's, Claudine will leave late in the afternoon to meet Spider at a party thrown by ABC sportscaster Bob Beatty. Spider and Claudine attend the party together, but the couple is noticed there by others having some tension. Something is going on. Spider will leave the party first, separately from Claudine. Claudine will follow soon after and is described as driving erratically and recklessly through Aspen looking for her lover. In short order, Claudine will end up headed back to Starwood and Aspen where she crashes through the monitored security gates. A few minutes later, there's a call about a shooting within the exclusive community. A shooting in Starwood? This is not where crime happens. An officer races to the chalet where the following is in play. A distraught Claudine who has shot Spider, who is lying on the bathroom floor, who is then rushed to the hospital. And this officer, instead of trying to restrain Claudine, will allow her to go in the ambulance with Spider, but with the direction to another officer to keep his eye on her at all times. Never let her out of your sight. Claudine, Spider, the ambulance take off. And now the cops begin searching the home to begin to piece together what may have happened. They're looking for the gun, which they find in the bedroom, 22 Luger. They look for the casing. They find that as well. But nothing is disturbed in the scene. There are no fibers. There's no hair. There's no apparent disturbance with furniture or items in the room. But the crime scene photographers come in and they're taking pictures of the room and the evidence in question. And an investigator will come across Claudine's diary on top of the dresser. He will pick it up to read it. Pictures are still being taken by the crime scene unit. And this diary where Claudine is spilling all of her anger, her secrets, her rage, and the details of the ongoing breakup are all there in black and white. I tell you this now, dear listeners, because it is going to become very important during the trial. The diary is not in the photos on top of the dresser because the cop is reading the diary. Other than that, there's not a whole lot of physical evidence in the crime scene. Then the phone rings. It is the hospital calling to let everyone know that Spider Savage is dead on arrival, and his cause of death is internal bleeding from the gunshot wound. Dominic will say, news of the shooting roars through Aspen like an avalanche. This wasn't just some random killing you read about in the back of the papers. This drama stars the hottest, most alluring couple in town, and everyone was talking. And y'all, they're going to keep talking, because Aspen's most famous resident is dead at the hands of his lover that he's been trying to break up with for months now? 
A lot of things are going to happen as we continue this story. Claudine is taken into the jail around 8 p.m. that evening, where she is questioned about what happened, as well as given a blood test for any possible substances that might show in her system. When questioned, Claudine will say it was all a terrible accident. She just needed to know how to use the gun for safety. He was going to be going away, and he was showing her how to use it. And there is some talk about the safety being on or off and the knowledge of guns and its proper working order. Cops do have some really valid questions, though. If you live in a gated community, why would you need to know how to use a firearm? Why would Spider be showing you how to use that said firearm inside a home, also wrapped in a bath towel? I also forgot to tell you, Spider's father is a highway patrolman. Everyone in Spider's family is very familiar with guns and associated safety rules. He's a big-time outdoorsman. The scene actually looks like Spider's fresh out of the shower, leaning over to shave on his way to somewhere, like, for instance, the dinner he's supposed to be having with his former coach, Bob Biatti, that evening. Cops have questions, mainly, this is the time Spider wants to show you, Claudine, on this day of all days, at five in the afternoon, in his bath towel, to use a weapon inside the home? The x-rays taken at the hospital do indicate that Spider's back was turned when he was struck. It looks an awful lot like he wasn't paying attention at all, turned over the sink, about to shave. But the forensic evidence is collected and sent for testing, and an autopsy is underway, and the cops are investigating the crime scene, taking more pictures, again, trying to piece it all together. Sure enough, just a little while down at the police station, Ron Austin, a prominent local defense attorney, shows up and says he's just going to be taking the little lady right out of here. And the cops are like, not before we book her. Where that evening Claudine is booked, charged with homicide and criminal negligence, although she will be released a bit later that evening. Also happening that evening, about 10 p.m. that night in Aspen, the closed-after-sunset Aspen Airport is opened very suddenly for an emergency landing. Because who's flying in but Claudine's ex-husband, Andy Williams? Andy is going to pay for her high-powered and costly defense and support her through the next stages of what is to come. What is to come? Well, forensic evidence is now coming in, and looking at the ballistic evidence from the gunshot residue on Spider, it is clear that the gun was fired from 6 to 10 feet away. The way the bullets travel and their upward trajectory do prove that Spider's back was turned, prepping to shave, and Claudine's story does not quite match all the evidence presented. There's no need for the gun to be out. Really, the skilled outdoorsman somehow is showing you how to use a gun with his back turned in a towel from the bathroom? Next up, get a little bit more evidence, this time about the gun, and this is even more disturbing. There are small indentations from where the hammer would strike the cartridge. What this evidence shows is that the gun fails to fire five times before it shoots the bullet it does. Claudine has attempted to fire 
five times on a stuck cylinder before that fatal shot. This is not a gun safety lesson. Additionally, cocaine is found in Claudine's system from that blood test administered the night of the shooting. As to motive for the crime, you got the diary. It's all there in black and white. The prosecution believes this attests to the in-cold-blood status of the crime. The moving out, the jealousies, all of it. Claudine in her diary is writing about managing the situation, and she will bring it all under control. Spider is not going to dump her. The authorities feel her own words prove how angry she was, and, well, there's your motive. Aspen has a lot to say about all of this. At first, there's shock. But then rumors begin sweeping the town. Was it murder or was it really just an accident? Many of the town are in deep mourning. Again, this is Aspen's beloved son. And according to Power, Privilege, and Justice, about 90% are going to stick with the it was murder stance. The court of public opinion is completely stacked against Claudine. No one is shedding any tears for her. In a few weeks, Pitkin County feels pretty good about their case, and on April 8, 1976, Claudine is arraigned on charges of homicide and criminal intent. She will plead not guilty and promptly hire Charles Weedman, a prominent L.A. criminal defense attorney, to assist with local counsel Ron Austin in her defense, with Andy Williams footing the bill. Wealth and connections coming in handy again. With an unlimited budget, Justice can go right out the window. And Charles Weedman is good. He's really good. And the way he sees it, there are three main complications for Claudine's case. The gun, the diary, and the blood test. And the trial is set for January 1977. And as soon as the trial date is set, immediately there's a pre-trial motion to suppress, which is filed by the defense to have the diary thrown out. The defense team will argue that the diary is specifically listed on the search warrant. But Claudine says the diary was hidden in her dresser drawer. And unless they searched for it in their initial investigation, how would they have known it was there to list it on the search warrant? It is sure not on the top of the dresser in those photos that your crime scene team took. Why isn't the diary on top of the dresser? The cops are like, yeah, the dude had picked it up and was reading it on the bed, but I took the photos, and sure, it's not in those first ones, but it is in the second round of shots after he put it back. Because the cop that was reading it was like, yes. I looked at it, I noticed it had evidentiary value, and I put it back on the dresser so we can get it on the search warrant. Bad for the prosecution, this does leave two sets of photos with conflicting evidence, leading the court to believe that, hey, this is sloppy. The chain of proper procedure has been broken here. Search and seizure rules clearly could have been violated. Illegal search and seizure is the call. Sorry, folks. Diary's out. And there goes the motive for the prosecution. The diary spelled it all out. She was angry to use them forced to move out and end the relationship. She would not be outdone by him. Motive no more. Next up, the gun. The defense will attack again, saying that the gun was mishandled. It was taken from the bed after the shooting and wrapped in a handkerchief and put in the glove compartment of the sheriff's car. 
The gun is actually unaccounted for for a few days as it stays in the sheriff's car until someone is like, hey, where is that murder weapon? Now it's a possible suppression under a chain of custody issue. And to add a little bit more terrible into it, when a rookie cop finally is told to go retrieve the gun from the handkerchief in the car that's been there for a few days, the rookie cop does, and will end up removing the spent cartridge. And now we have contamination of the evidence. You have an unqualified rookie discharging the gun, not an expert. Now we have some real problems with the questions about the gun's safety. What was the condition and the position of everything before that rookie dischargement? No one will ever know. The defense is certainly earning their high dollar fee. Two of the three main pieces of the case against Claudine are out. And what seemed like a very easily provable case of homicide is not quite looking as clear cut as the prosecution imagined starting out. In continuing preparation for the trial, the defense is also going to make another classic move. Claudine will reach out to contact the seamstress to the stars. Her name is Sydney Stone. Claudine is looking for some court clothes. When Claudine shows up at jury selection, she is in a baggy gray dress and fry boots. The look is working. Like Claudine is sexy off the charts, y'all, in every single way. And now she is dressed in sacks and Peter Pan collars and pleated skirts and crew neck sweaters. No shape, dull colors, no sex appeal at all. Innocent schoolgirl kind of clothes. Every bit of her attractiveness is hidden behind her court costumes. In anticipation for the beginning of the trial in January, the national and international press are descending into Aspen to cover it all. This is one of the really big celebrity trials of the era. And Aspen's mad about all of the attention that the town is getting in this circus environment. Locals will try to run down photographers in the street. They'll yell vultures at them from their vehicles. The atmosphere in Aspen is heated, the town is angry, and it is pretty clear which way this is leaning with the community at large. It is the talk of every street corner, every restaurant, and every single person has a connection, and every single person has an opinion. The trial will begin January 10th, and it is a star-studded affair. Benches are filled every day. Andy Williams will attend every day. Also in this short trial, he will be called onto the witness stand. The prosecution has had to reframe their case with the diary and the gun now tossed out. They can no longer prove premeditated murder and instead will intend to prove reckless manslaughter. The case against Claudine is really she should have known it could have gone off. There was not anything else that needed to be shown. You behaved recklessly in a way that could have ended a life. We're not calling your friends or the gossip or the breakup or anything else into this just the facts. The prosecution will rest after two days. Next up, the defense will call Claudine. Demure, diminutive, not a bit of appeal or Jezebel threat anywhere near her. She's just tiny, soft-spoken, and she'll speak in a whisper so softly that the jury must lean forward to hear her. 
Claudine will say very softly again, she has no idea how it happened. It was just all a terrible accident, and she and Spider were the best of friends, and he was just showing me how to use the gun. He assured me the safety was on. She had no reason to want him dead. She is quaint. She is soft. She is gentle. She is perplexed at how it all happened. Again, she is an actress after all. Inside of a week, three days, it's done. The defense rests and the jury will return three hours later with the guilty verdict, but not of the felony manslaughter, but instead with the misdemeanor guilty verdict of negligent homicide. This verdict carries the possibility of two years in prison as the maximum sentence. Claudine is interviewed after the verdict and will say again in her very soft voice, I have too much respect and love for living things to be guilty of that crime, and I am not guilty of it. The next week, the sentence is delivered by the judge. Aspen is waiting. And as the majority of the community, do you think this is a clear-cut case of murder? The sentence, well, does not reflect what the community feels may be appropriate. Claudine is ordered to spend 30 days in jail with a $250 fine. Also, this time is to be served in the Pitkin County Jail, which is described as Mayberry with room service. The judge will also helpfully allow a provision for Claudine to serve her 30 days when it is convenient for her. There is no carting her away today or anything drastic like that. Spider's family, the courtroom, the whole town is shocked and people are unforgiving. The sentence does not go down well. People feel like Spider's life was worth way more than 30 days in the Pitkin County Jail and a $250 fine. There's a lot of hatred for Claudine, as well as the system, too, that messed up this badly to allow this kind of outcome. Claudine, she's in no hurry to serve her time. She will travel for a seaside vacation in Mexico first. She's going to take a little time to relax and recover, you know, from the murder trial. Claudine will show up five months later to serve her 30 days when her kids are out of school for the summer. And, you know, Pitkin County, pretty nice. In her 30-day period, they let her paint her cell pink while she is serving her time. The Savage family will file a $1.3 million wrongful death suit against Claudine. It is settled out of court for an undisclosed amount with the provision that Claudine may never speak publicly about Spider their relationship, or his death again. Claudine is the point of some scorn and ridicule. There is a Saturday Night Live skit where she is represented as hosting the Langer Invitational, and she is shooting skiers as they come down the slope. This will prompt a cease and desist letter immediately out to Lorne Michaels, where an apology was aired on the next week's live episode. In 1980, Mick Jagger will write a song called Claudine for the Rolling Stones' Emotional Rescue album. This song will mock Claudine's role in Spider's Killing, as well as the light sentence she received. Again, some legal issues and filings and threats do not allow for the general release of this song on that album, although it does manage to surface on bootleg tapes every now and then. Claudine will remain in Aspen, after the trial and lead a fairly quiet life raising her children. In 1985, Claudine marries again, this time to her local defense lawyer, 
Ron Austin. They are still married, continue to live in Aspen, and maintain a very private life together. I wish I could tell you more about how Nick felt on this one. The only thing we have is that power, privilege, and justice episode, and that is where the story ends, folks. Thank you so much for joining me today on this chapter of Done and Done. Thank you for your continued kind reviews and your feedback. You are so much appreciated. We will be back in two weeks with another episode of Done and Done. Until we meet again, I'm wishing you the most wonderful week, sending you my encouragement to stay curious, and as always, keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.